Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. That was Kimberly Adams. That was Kimberly Adams. Just, I, you know, I don't know. I can't read out. words. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, on the other hand, am not Kimberly Adams. I'm Kyle Rizal. It is Tuesday today, the 10th day of October. Um, so here's what we're going to do today. And, and we've chit-chatted about this a little bit, I think, a couple of times on the podcast. We're going to dig into it today. Four-ish years ago, uh, a couple of hundred really high-profile CEOs in this economy signed a statement promising to serve stakeholders, people like employees and consumers, along with their shareholders. Uh, if you are at all familiar with Milton Friedman, you remember that, that Friedman uh, famously said that a company's duty is to maximize shareholder value. And in point of fact, that might not be the best way to actually do business. I'm just saying. So we're going to talk about that today. Right. And these companies made a big to do about signing this thing back in 2019. And we just want to see, you know, how, how that's been going, how mm -hmm. that's been going and uh, how it might tie into the recent surge in labor movement activity. So here to make us smart about this is Molly Kinder, a fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution, where they focus on the labor market and low wage workers. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So why was the Business Roundtable statement such a big deal back then? Well, if you can put your head back into 2019 before the pandemic, one of the hot topics, one of the big headlines was that the economy really wasn't delivering for workers. We had such extreme inequality. The richest were getting richer, but average workers, and especially workers at the bottom, were really falling behind. So it seemed like a really big deal that companies pledge, so many of the top co uh, companies in the country said, no longer is it just our purpose to make our shareholders richer. Really, we're supposed to also look after our workers and the community and the environment. And so it was supposed to signal a new era of more responsible and equitable business. Supposed to doing a whole lot of heavy lifting in that yeah. answer right there, Molly. Um, with the understanding that this thing was non-binding and was, in fact, a very nice public relations play, um, uh, has anything changed? Well, this is exactly the question that two of my co-authors, Katie Bach and Laura Statler, and I set out to answer when we did a really big report at Brookings last year. And what we did was we looked at about 10% of those companies who signed that pledge some of the biggest names that we've all heard of in retail and fast food and hotels, FedEx, UPS, Amazon, Walmart, you name it. And we wanted to know, did anything change for their workers? And we wanted to look at a really unique period of time, which was the first two years of the pandemic. Now, these companies had all signed this pledge about nine months before the pandemic started. And suddenly overnight, their workers on the front line were risking their lives. And uh, this question of whether or not workers were going to be taken care of and, and be part of the, the gains of the company's success mattered a heck of a lot more in the pandemic because workers were risking their lives. Mm. And if you also remember, George Floyd was murdered and these same companies made pledges to do right by racial equity. So we looked at uh, about 22 companies who collectively employ 7 million frontline workers, over half of which are non-white. And we set out to answer the question in the first two years of the pandemic, did these companies make right on those pledges? Did workers benefit from what was often just huge success in the pandemic? Um, and and did they and wor did workers benefit in terms of better wages? And frankly, our our findings were very disappointing. What did you find? 
Well, what we found was that, you know, of course, we all have heard the headlines that um, companies raise wages for workers during the pandemic. But ultimately, what we find was those wage gains were really modest, especially when you take into account the fact that these frontline workers at companies like Home Depot and McDonald's and Target, they started off making very modest wages. So sometimes the wages might have gone up in real terms 5%, 8%, but their starting point was really low. And when you compare that to just the enormous gains for those company shareholders, it was peanuts in comparison. So we documented that the shareholders of those 22 companies became a trillion trillion and a half dollars richer in those first two years of the pandemic. Whereas workers, the 7 million workers at those companies, they got about 2% of that gain in terms of all the pay increases, hazard pay, bonuses, permanent wage increases. So the gains were really lopsided. When companies did well, it was their very wealthy shareholders and their CEOs that did extremely well. And workers only modestly earned more. And at the end of the day, uh, f- uh, only a minority of companies paid even half of their workers enough to pay their bills. So really what we saw was that the shareholders and the companies themselves did extremely well and workers really didn't see much of that gain. So with the understanding the correlation is not causality, can you um, make a logical connection between the uh, I won't call it the failure, but the underperformance of the companies in that letter to live up to what the letter said uh, to uh, the labor movement that has kicked up in the last three-ish or so years. And, I, and I'm thinking most specifically here about the United Auto Workers, whose uh, president, Sean Fain, has been vocal about um, his contempt for and his... Uh, worry about the disconnect between CEOs and shareholders and what the people actually making the cars are making? You know, Kai, I think that's a great question. And I do think there's a very strong connection. You know, I've talked with a lot of workers who've been part of some of the big union drives since the start of the pandemic, the Starbucks workers, for instance. You know, a lot of their grievances that caused them to form their first ever unions are the same grievances that we see in the auto worker strike, for instance, or the reason why UPS drivers were willing uh, willing to strike. And that is these, these workers on the front line have seen their companies do extremely well, particularly in this volatile period in the pandemic when these workers really risked their lives just to show up to work. And when they see this disconnect where they see these inflated profits, they know the shareholders who are already amongst the most wealthy in the country are really reaping the benefits. And they really don't see their paychecks moving very much, especially when you take into account inflation. And you add into that the feeling they had of having to show up to work and risking their lives. I really think that created such a deep sense of grievance that they didn't feel that the companies were doing enough. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's what you're seeing with a lot of these um, the, for, the the sort of big swell of formations of unions at places like Starbucks and the strike right now in the auto work, um, the auto industry. And, and, you know, I think really what you're seeing is that workers feel that when companies made these voluntary claims that they were going to do better, but there was no teeth to it. Mm-hmm. They really feel like, well, at the end of the day, if the companies aren't going to do it, really the only way we're going to get our fair shake of this is if we exercise our power. 
let's assuming we don't take the sort of cynical read of this, which is, you know, greed. Um, are there sort of economic, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know, assuming uh, are, are there sort of economic or, or business reasons why companies don't do this? Like other than, you know, just wanting to make themselves and, and people like them richer. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, some of these uh, shareholder groups or activist shareholders who will little, literally sue a company if they don't think they're doing a good enough job making money for the shareholders. Are there real economic disincentives to reallocating some of these profits to workers and, and communities? You know, that's an excellent question, Kimberly. I think what, what we did, my co-authors and I, we actually listened into every single earning call for nearly two years for all of these companies to listen mm. to the kind of questions the investors asked. And what was the discussion, particularly at the height of the pandemic when there was no vaccine? How were they discussing pay increases, things like hazard pay? And what's really striking is that investors, ultimately, the majority of them that are raising their voices are really interested in the bottom line. They want to know how how the decisions that uh, company executives are going to make are going to affect their bottom line. So labor is a cost to be minimized. And most of the questions about pay increases, for instance, around hazard pay, when can these end? And really, the, the company executives are under a lot of pressure to maximize short-term results, quarterly results. Everything in their incentives is around share price, stock price. So all the incentives that executives face in terms of who they report to, their board, their, their shareholders, it's really about maximizing shareholder value in the short run. So what you see then is decisions like what we document in our report that the companies that we looked at, the 22 companies, spent five times as much rewarding their shareholders through dividends and stock buybacks than they did in raising pay for workers during those first two years of the pandemic. Now, I'm sure if you asked a man on or woman on the street and asked, what feels fair to you? What feels right when workers are risking their lives? If, if these companies have... Um, you know, have increased their profits, how would you allocate those resources to their shareholders versus their workers? I'm not sure the public would be in favor of that allocation. But really, executives, I think, are under a lot of pressure in the short run to to maintain that share price, to make sure their investors and their shareholders um, are rewarded. And, and even, I think, when you have uh, well-intentioned executives, their own incentive structure is not necessarily aligned in the short run to investing in workers. So look, what's it going to take? Right? I mean, you know. You know, I think that really the conclusion of, of our analysis is that it's not enough to ask these CEOs on their own to just simply do the right thing. These voluntary commitments absent more structural reforms are simply not enough. Even when they raise wages a little bit for workers, at the end of the day, a lot of their workers still can't pay their bills. Even when they're making trillions of dollars in, in, in sort of shareholder value. So I think where we came out is that it's less about the discretion and voluntary actions of companies and more about changing the structure. So making it such that actually workers have more power and CEOs have less power. So that might look like 
labor law reform to make it easier for workers to do what the UPS workers just accomplished, Mm -hmm. which was a huge pay increase. I mean, $6 an hour overnight for part-time workers, the minimum wage went up, and that's because they're in a union. Um, We think things like raising the minimum wage, giving workers more of a voice in corporate governance. Some of these uh, reforms, I think, would go a long way toward um, rebalancing that power between workers, shareholders, and companies. Molly Kinder uh, at the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings. Molly, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your insights. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Molly. I I do kind of wonder also whether, and look, this will never happen because securities laws and also transparency, but the whole thing about forward guidance and, you know, quarterly earnings and all of that stuff where companies try to hit the number and all of that. I mean, I think there are some flaws in in the structure of how corporate capitalism works too, let alone the sort of inside the boardroom machinations. If I recall correctly, around the same time or maybe a year before or later, they also said that they wanted to disincentivize quarterly guidance and were encouraging more. um, And I think several of them did stop doing it, but not a lot. Right. Right. Um, Right. Hmm. Anyway. All right. Um, Well, let us know what you think. Um, What do you see as the role of corporations today uh, and... You know, whether what what it might take to rebalance things or if things should be rebalanced in terms of who gets what profit, because, you know, we didn't get to this. But a lot of those shareholders are also us <laughs> people yeah. with 401ks and and 403bs in, in our we, case and uh, and investments and things like that. So we should uh, say yeah, also, we'd love... sorry, good. Mm. Well, that was a little comrade flag. Yeah. I was just trying to jump in there before you sent us to the break. Well, I just want to point out and this is uh, we should have said this earlier. We called the business roundtable to see what they had to say about this, and they didn't get back to us. That's yeah, that's important. That's important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let us know what you think. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. We'll be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. All right. News. Kimberly Adams. Yes. So 
The New York Times has an interesting story about who runs the best schools in the country with Mm. the argument that it might be the United States Defense Department. And it goes into all of this data from the National Association of Educational Progress, um, which is considered to be, you know, a really good standard for comparing states and districts and how their schools do. And the Department of Defense schools do far and away significantly better than schools in the rest of the country and um, sort of big cities like D.C. And including in the pandemic when so many kids sort of had learning loss, a lot of these Department of Defense um, schools have, have bounced back and the kids are the kids are doing all right. You still have some of the um, racial and ethnic disparities that we have in, in all schools. But <sighs> Anyway, that Mm -hmm. is a normal thing in this country, which is sad that it's normal. But the schools are doing better. And it points to a lot of things for reasons for that, namely that the schools are well-funded through the Department of uh, Defense and that, um, you know, there's a very good, like, organized system uh, for how to run these schools and, you know, the families have access to housing and health care, and at least one parent has a job. Because if your kid is in a military school, one of, at least one of the parents is in the military, and you probably have housing. And sometimes just having those basic needs met allow students to perform better. Teachers are well paid, um, which helps them recruit better teachers. I bring all these things up because we're often looking for solutions for our schools, and we have them. As in, we have data here showing what actually works and, you know, well-stocked supply um, closets. Mm-hmm. So the teachers aren't paying for pencils and, and, and paper and, and craft things, which a lot of American teachers have to do. So there's that, which reminded me of uh, some work that um, we did on Marketplace Morning Report a while back on homelessness. And when I was researching and reporting for those stories, I found really interesting data about um, veteran homelessness in the United States. And this was another issue that the U.S. government just threw money at it. They were like, Mm. this is a huge problem. We are going to throw money at it. And since 2010, the number of veterans experiencing homelessness in the United States has been cut almost in half. This was from 2021, this particular press release I'm reading. I think since then it's even it's gotten even better. That's about half. Um, and several prep factors I'm going to read here played into this progress. Investments in veteran-specific programs, a housing-first approach, and strong leadership. So a lot of times we hear narratives about, you know, keep the government out of things. The government, you know, needs to, you know, stay out of our schools and our homes and this, that, and the other. But I think that there is a lot to learn from government programs and how they are run and resourced that can give us data that whether you want the federal government to do it or not, or your state to do it, or your local government to do it, or your community to do it, that shows what works. That's all. Yeah, for sure. There there are places uh, in this country where government actually works. Sadly, none of Mm -hmm. them are in Washington, D.C., but that's a whole different thing. Uh, okay, so uh, I just want to just super quick, uh, and and it's a, it's a little dorky, but there's a guy by the name of Rafael Bostic, who's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, uh, who said in a speech today, in a set of remarks today, actually, he was answering questions uh, uh, at the American Bankers Association conference, which I'm sure is just a great time, um, <laughs> that, that he doesn't think we need to raise interest rates anymore. Now, 
Bostic is not a member, a voting member of the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the committee that sets interest rates this year. Uh, but he is an influential voice. He's he's well respected. And what he is saying sort of jives with what the vice chair of the Fed, Phil Jefferson, has been saying and the new president of the Dallas Fed, Lori Logan, has been saying that maybe we need to just not raise interest rates for a while and see what happens. So stay tuned. The Fed meets again uh, next month, early ish. Um, but it's possible we'll get another pause as as, uh, you know, sort of the, the rate hikes and, and Milton Friedman's long and variable lag. Mm-hmm. There's Milton Friedman twice in this podcast uh, wow. as his long and variable lag uh, take effect. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I was just looking um, on CNBC. I saw earlier today uh, the Walmart CEO said consumers are starting to buckle for the mm-hmm. first time mm-hmm. in a decade and was warning of a pullback in spending, which is exactly what right. the Fed kind of wanted people to do. Right. Exactly. So the Fed raises rates until something breaks and and mm-hmm. the sign of something breaking might be consumers sort of saying, eh, we're not doing this anymore, which would be huge. Yeah. So keep an eye on that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, mailbag coming up. Hi, Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Last week, we had Bloomberg Zeke Fox on the show to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried, SPF's trial, and the crypto industry more broadly. And we asked you all to share your thoughts on crypto. And Richard in New Hampshire sent us this. I'm not the world's biggest crypto for everything cheerleader, but I am the managing editor of the first academic peer-reviewed journal on the topic of cryptocurrencies and the blockchains they make possible. Our authors have published research into everything from blockchain-based robotics to blockchain usage in the so-called Internet of Things to the feasibility of using blockchains for rail traffic control. With so many grifters in the cryptocurrency space, it's easy to miss that there are brilliant, serious academics working quietly behind the scenes on what is, in all honesty, still a nascent technology. Hmm. Very fair. Yeah, Very fair. Totally. Um, that journal is called Ledger, and it's published published by Pitt Open Library Publishing, publishing at the University of Pittsburgh. And I think that's almost the saddest thing. Well, no, it's not the saddest thing. The saddest thing is people losing their life savings. But it's really sad that people who are working on this in seriousness get lumped mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. with the grifters. That mm-hmm. That's a real bummer. Yeah, totally fair. Uh, all right. So we were talking about uh, uh, self-checkout at Half Full, Half Empty uh, the other day. And Anthony, who is very empty on this, uh, wrote us a little story to tell us why. Here's what he says. It's an email. I was in Target with 12 to 15 items and a three-year-old hanging on to me. And there were no person-staffed checkout lines. Picture the scene. Three other carts queuing behind me and getting impatient. I'm starting to sweat as my toddler is balancing in my arm near a meltdown as I try to scan the banana code and bag all my items. This too shall pass, he says. But it's not disability or multiple kid parent friendly, which is totally true. Been there. Mm -hmm. Totally true. And this is what we were saying, that it need, there needs yeah. to at least be the option, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? And this week's answer comes from Charlie Sprinkman, founder of Everywhere is Queer, a public resource with a searchable map to locate queer-owned businesses. Something I was wrong about. Being able to start a map-based business by myself. I really struggled to take the jump to start because I have no tech background. And so I was really intimidated by that. After some Googling though, I was able to figure out that I can put together a free application that will flow onto a map and that will 
do it. And so that was just really exciting to be able to figure this out by myself. And I definitely relied on some community members around me for their support and advice. I really recommend people to use the people around them for what they know. People do want to help. And I'm grateful to say that my map has been viewed over 1.6 million times, which highlights and showcases queer-owned businesses all over the world. Hmm. That's kind of a cool story. That's kind of a cool story. You know, after I mentioned in passing, I think, uh, during Half Full, Half Empty about this lamp that I have that needs uh, rewiring and my frustrations with it, mm-hmm. I have received so many messages from people offering to help me figure out how to wire it, pointing me to resources online, encouraging me to do it myself. And it was just very warm and fuzzy. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to try it. And so people are like, you know, I'm in the I'm in the D.C. area. You can send it to me. And I was just like, people are so kind. And I love that. That's very cool. Yeah. That is very cool. Uh, we do want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART is how you can reach us. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Charlton Thorpe with mixing by Jake Cherry. Our intern is Neela Farshabandi. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. Marketplace vice president and general manager is Neil Scarpa. There we go. We finished too soon. Or Charlton's playing the long music by mistake. I don't know. (laughs) It's like chatter, chatter, vamp, vamp. (laughs) We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.